the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 57. Virtues versus Vices. The Morality Play. Last time, I concluded the story of the development of the Corpus Christi cycle plays with a look at the detail of two of them. There are, of course, many more that I could have combed through in detail, but apart from the changing biblical story, they're all pretty similar. The methods used and the approach taken doesn't vary very much from play to play, and perhaps most significantly, the message they convey about the overarching plan of God doesn't change. So not too much would be gained by working through more examples. However, if the story of their development and the details from the harrowing of hell and Noah and the Great Flood have piqued your interest, then you can read the plays in various collected volumes. If you want to get back to the original language, then the Penguin Collection gives a good selection from each of the complete cycles. But if you prefer something with modernised spelling and therefore easier to read, then the Oxford University Press selection of the York plays is a good place to start. You can also watch excerpts of modern interpretations of the plays on YouTube from a number of towns around England. But now we move on to a different but not unrelated sort of drama, the morality play which is a type of play that for all of its similarities and shared heritage with the Corpus Christi cycle plays did bring something new to the world of drama and had a profound effect on the future development of theatre. We'll get to that effect in a moment but first I'm going to look at what the differences were between the cycle plays and the morality plays. In the cycle plays and in the saints plays part of the intention was to educate the people in the way to lead a good life by the example of the biblical story or the life of the saint following those precepts. The fundamental difference with the morality play is that it attempted to impart that same education through a much more personalised example. These plays were designed to illustrate how the individual might be trapped by the devil and led, however unwittingly, into a bad life. The plays aim to show that the devil set traps for each and every individual and that every man or woman, regardless of social status or wealth, should be wary of what was around the next corner. God and the salvation provided by the death of Jesus could save you, but a constant lookout was required. Recalling the idea of the ludus, the game, the tension between man and the devil was often portrayed as an ongoing war of attrition, where a round of defeat for the devil would only lead to another attack with renewed vigour. He always had an eye on the main prize, the souls of men and women. The morality plays were a means to stage a debate, and much more so than the cycle plays ever did. These plays included elements of debate, of course, Jesus debating with Satan in the harrowing of hell, for example, but the narrative story was always the main thrust. The morality play was more overtly a debate, and as such, was less concerned with a storyline. Their focus was primarily and overtly on the education of the audience rather than for their entertainment. The concept of the education of the masses is really key here, although this didn't mean, as we might expect, that they were part of a more general attempt to improve the literacy level in the general population. With the majority of people being illiterate, education through visual imagery remained the potent force that it had been for centuries. And hence the decoration in churches, the pictorial storytelling in a stained glass window or wall-hung tapestry, and the development of the visual church ceremony, and the dramatic interludes that became religious drama. On the website there's a blog post I wrote about a recent visit to Roslyn Chapel near Edinburgh. This is the medieval church that features in the book and film The Da Vinci Code, but the reason to visit the chapel is not that, but to see the carved decoration there. 
It's a wonderful example of how the medieval mind was tuned to pictorial storytelling. There are some pictures on the blog post, or you can go to the chapel's own website for more detail. I've put the link in the show notes for both sites. From St Augustine, writing in the 5th century CE, the church had supported the idea of a well-organised Christian education, with much of that drive being carried through the monastic traditions. St Augustine established the basis with grammar, rhetoric and dialectic as the three-pronged basis for all learning. He was borrowing this from previous classical period ideals. Grammar and rhetoric equipped a man with the ability to express an idea and dialectic the ability to investigate the truth of an expressed opinion. To these basics he added music, arithmetic, astronomy and geometry as subjects worthy of study in a Christian life. These seven subjects became known as the liberal arts. By the Middle Ages, these arts had become personified and represented with symbols for the benefit of the illiterate majority. Lady Wisdom was their leader and personified the benefits of their collective virtues. Through monastic teachings, the rules for living a Christian life were formalised and in opposition to the virtues, the idea of the seven vices were developed. These then became, over time, the seven deadly sins. Gluttony, lechery, covetousness, anger, sloth, envy and pride – were Satan's tools in his fight for men's souls. But the virtues could save you. Mercy, justice, temperance and truth, known as God's virtues, and the cardinal virtues of faith, hope and charity, were the guiding lights for man's salvation. These concepts were forged from the 6th century onwards, into the education given to monks and clerics, but didn't move beyond the church service or monastic preacher until the 12th and 13th centuries, when universities first began to appear across Europe. With the establishment of centres from Oxford to Paris and Bologna to Krakow and beyond, knowledge and education became internationalised for the first time and was owned by those who taught at the institutions. In fact, the universities resembled the craft guilds in many ways. Rather than masters and apprentices being unified within the guild, it was teachers and pupils who established close relationships and a degree of common heritage across the sites in Europe. The universities developed faculties to specialise in particular subjects, and some became better known and regarded for the liberal arts rather than law or theology, which were seen as the most serious and important subjects of the day. The liberal arts were often used as the basis for entry to study one of these more highly regarded subjects, so tended to attract the younger student. That in turn led to youthful misbehaviour that generated some institutions a bad reputation but also to students funding their studies by performing as minstrels, actors or other entertainers. Along with the continuing development of universities in the 13th and 14th century, the monastic influence also changed as the Dominican and Franciscan orders rose to prominence, with their emphasis on poverty and the importance of the individual's relationship to God in the face of abject unworthiness. As members of these orders began to influence the educational establishments, philosophical and religious thought in the later Middle Ages changed to focus on the experience of the individual and the responsibility that each individual had to guard for his own salvation. It was still only God's grace and good works that could save him, but his heart had to be open to these options and wary of the insidious tricks of the devil that could easily bring him down. The growth of educational establishments was a slow process until the 16th century, but the better education of clerics and monks who came through the university route did spill into the education of the masses. 
Much as they could enjoy and learn from allegorical art, the main teaching tool was the church sermon, delivered by the parish priest or in the marketplace by the travelling monk preacher. The marketplace was just as good a spot to point out the errors of man and urge them to the right course, as was the pulpit. The tools of the preacher's trade were parable and allegory, following the example of Jesus and the apostles by taking the complexities of Christian theology and breaking them down into simple doctrine illustrated by a familiar setting to the local population. We would now think of these as cautionary tales, where an imagined, real or mythical story was told and then related to a moral dilemma. An image from the localised story could then be taken to represent a universal truth that could then be equated to the actions of Christ or the Church. Such stories became steeped in symbolic details that the congregation became familiar with over generations. The main thrust of preaching in the later Middle Ages was a call for penitence and the extolling of the benefits of a simple life that laid aside secular trappings. It is from these ideas and this form of preaching that morality plays are thought to have developed. Now we can see secular storytelling being used in the service of the religious message, and this allowed for dramatisations of this type of story, and it was something that was only a step or two away from what the preachers were already doing. And now we come back to the great influence that morality plays had on the future of theatre. This was not from the content of the plays, but was in the way that they released the performance of the plays away from the tie to the religious festival. As dramatisations of the preacher's storytelling and being inherently instructional in their nature, they could be applied to many situations, and as such, they became the tool of the travelling performer, the band of actors who could travel from town to town, presenting from a limited repertoire of plays, regardless of the season. That then became a means of support for these actors, and the beginning of a profession re-emerges for the first time since the Roman period. Bands of actors could be professional or semi-professional, with some no doubt mixing other itinerant work to make ends meet when necessary. By the late 14th century we have evidence that this was the case. The records at Selby Abbey in Yorkshire from 1480 show several payments being made to visiting players. These are troops who were attached to the service of a lord, but who were travelling to other sites for commercial gain. The players of the Duke of Gloucester, the Earl of Northumberland and Sir James Tyrrell are amongst those mentioned. If the name Sir James Tyrrell sounds familiar, it's probably because he appears in Shakespeare's Richard III as the orchestrator of the murder of the princes in the Tower. Shakespeare, in this case, was working closer to the understood truth than he often did. Tyrrell was convicted of treason and executed for the murders, but his alleged confession was never publicly seen, so his culpability is doubtful. The morality play may have been a new approach to expounding God's message, but it still owed a lot to the form of the existing cycle plays. The message of God's saving grace was rooted in the theology shared with the cycle plays, but the emphasis changed from narrative storytelling to presenting a moral argument. Both forms are didactic, but use different tools to convey their message. The driving force of hubris and fortune that were to the fore in the classical theatre of Greece and Rome were now replaced in the morality play with the concept of sin against God. Any misfortune that struck was no longer seen as the act of a willful God or exclusively an act of overbearing pride, but as the result of a vice that came from within a man's nature and as something that could be exploited by the devil. From the highest born to the lowest, a fall from grace was always just a moment away. 
However, such faults did not guarantee damnation, as long as they could be recognised in time for repentance to be effective. With that premise and the prospect, if not exactly the certainty, of a happy ending through repentance and forgiveness, these plays were not tragedies of the state of mankind, but on the contrary, are essentially hopeful. The same themes are carried through other literature of the time, and it is, for example, in this sense that Dante called his narrative poem composed in the early 1300s the Divine Comedy. In the morality play, as was seen to some extent in the cycle plays like The Last Judgment, the fall of man from grace was equated to a personal moral weakness, weakness of character, which meant that the highest to the lowest could be seen to fall from God's grace through their own actions. It's as if all of the seven deadly sins surrounded every man, just waiting to detect the chink in his armour that would allow one or many of them to ingress to his soul. Typically, it's only after the attack has begun that realisation dawns on the protagonist of the wicked actions that he has undertaken, and that salvation is still possible through repentance. From potential tragedy comes the hope of forgiveness. Theologically speaking, this is the central tension in the plays although the majority of the audience may well have got more enjoyment from the spectacle of the physical fights on stage that represented the spiritual battles. It's possible that morality plays existed before the end of the 14th century, and records have been lost, but, far as we can see, this is the period where they gained some prominence and popularity. Elements of morality tales probably existed within the early church liturgical dramas and, as we know, also featured in the cycle plays. There are also references to Norman and German plays from the 12th century that have cast lists that include allegorised characters, suggesting that these could mark a transition from liturgical drama directly to morality play. Once again, the detail is scant, but it's reasonable to think that the development of the morality play could have come via both routes and quite possibly independently of each other. What can be said with a little more certainty is that about two centuries later we have plays that are distinctly different from the early liturgical drama and the Corpus Christi cycle plays. In relation to the former, they were written to be spoken, not sung, and in the vernacular, not Latin. And unlike the latter, were not narrative stories as I've discussed. The use of the vernacular is significant. In England, there's mention of the monks having taught the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer, in English, and it being recited in the vernacular in the York Plays of 1378. This is referenced by John Wycliffe, translator of the First English Bible, and as we lack any other detail about the play, it's become known as the Paternoster Play. Records from Beverley in Yorkshire hold another clue to this development. In 1469, 40 craft guilds presented plays divided into eight pageants, with each one being named after a personified vice – pride, ire, gluttony, luxury and others. The presentation is noted as being in the same space that was used for the Corpus Christi plays. A performance in nearby York is described as holding up the vices to scorn and the virtues to praise. We have no details about the plays themselves, but they were often revived until the late 16th century so appear to have had a lasting popularity. Other scratchy records suggest that plays like these became alternatives to the Corpus Christi plays and were sometimes presented on the feast day itself. The prompt book from the York plays of 1446 describes a play as being about the articles of the Catholic faith. It was revived frequently in the following years, but again, we have no details about its content and is now referred to simply as the Creed play. King Richard III was present at a performance in 1483. 
Until 1495, it was presented in various parts of the city, so we assume in the pageant wagon style. But interestingly after that, performances were given in the common hall. Although this hall hasn't been specifically identified, it does suggest that we are beginning to see performances moving indoors from this time. The Creed play had a long life. It was passed from the Performing Trade Guild to the Corpus Christi Guild in 1446, and when this was suppressed in 1547, it passed to the Hospital of St Thomas. There appear to have been attempts to revive the play several times in the 1560s, but the implication from the records is that none were particularly successful. In 1568, the play was sent to the Dean of York for approval as another revival was attempted. The Dean chose not to give his approval. His reasons are interesting. This is my translation and adaptation of his Middle English. Though it would have been possible ten years ago to present this piece, and it would have been well liked now by the ignorant masses, in the light of this time of truth, I know the learned will dislike it, and I am uncertain as to if the government will tolerate it. Just to put this into some context, 1568 was the year that Mary fled from Scotland to England after the military defeat by her Protestant half-brother and sought refuge with her cousin Elizabeth, who kept her under close arrest. By this time of truth, the Dean of York means the religious changes brought about by the Reformation, and so this speaks to the eventual fate of all of the religious drama that had flourished for centuries. The morality plays are clearly dramatised allegories that use personification to create a reality that sits somewhere between the visible world of man and the invisible world of God. But there were some subtleties about them too. To us, they can now seem a little confused in their characterisations, which although it seems to go against the strict didactic of the play, presents a humanised version of the vice or virtue. One striking example is in the play Mankind, where the personified character Mercy pleads for mercy from God. Now initially that seems a strange encounter for the author to set up, but it leads to Mercy being shown as a very vulnerable virtue, just as it might be in a person as circumstances and situations change. The personification can be rather fluid and possibly gave the audience a rather nuanced view of how virtues and vices interacted in the human condition. At their best, these plays could have been thought-provoking for the individual, who might be left contemplating where they sat on the spectrum, as we would say today, between virtue and vice. There are only five extant morality plays from this period, and the oldest of these, called The Pride of Life, is dated from the late 14th century. It's the earliest record of a morality play written in English, but it's incomplete. The single text that has survived comes from the Priory of the Holy Trinity in Dublin, where a scroll of accounting records from 1344 has the first 500 lines of the play written on the back. The script cuts off mid-sentence as the character of the messenger is sent by the king to call on death, so we probably have certainly less than half the play, maybe even only a quarter of it. The oldest complete morality play that we have surviving text is called The Castle of Perseverance. It dates from 1405 at the earliest or 1425 at the latest. I'm going to look at this play in detail next time, so just briefly to mention it here. It was designed to be performed in the round, in an open-air space. The content of the play is very interesting, but that interest is enhanced by the fact that we have a pictorial plan for how the play should be presented. Now, you would expect that this would bring some clarity as to how the play was actually performed, 
But in fact, the opposite is the case, with continuing academic debate about exactly what the illustration and its accompanying notes actually mean for production. The notes are admittedly rather cryptic in places which doesn't help. However, I have very much enjoyed reading the debate, which at times gets very spiky, over a 600-year-old question. So, more of The Castle of Perseverance next time. That play is about three and a half thousand lines long, and the manuscript is bound with two other shorter plays. Like The Castle of Perseverance, they involve the battle between mankind, the devil, and the vices at his command. The play of Mind, Will and Understanding, which is sometimes known as The Wisdom of Christ, has Christ and Lucifer battling it out in person, while the third play, simply called Mankind, has Mercy and Mischief taking on similar roles. Compared to The Castle of Perseverance, these are slight pieces. These four plays only exist in manuscript form, but perhaps the best-known morality play of them all, Everyman, is in four printed versions. The advent of a printed play should be noted. Not only does it suggest a significant degree of interest in it, printing was a hard-nosed financial for-profit decision, but marks the transition from the medieval to the early Tudor period in England. Every Man is another play that I'll take a look at in more detail soon. All of these plays are short, with a runtime of less than an hour, and feature small casts. As such, they could easily have been performed in the small, even indoor spaces by travelling companies, or on a booth stage outdoors. The booth stage was developed by at least the mid-1500s and possibly long before that. This type of stage is thought to have been developed as an extension to the pageant wagon, and as a practical solution for the mobile player troops, where it was necessary to carry a stage from place to place, and to be able to set it up relatively quickly in different spaces. There are illustrations from 1452 showing such a stage. It consists of a freestanding raised platform, the stage. Below the stage, which in the illustration looks maybe five or six feet high, is a skirted lower area, which possibly gave both visible and invisible access to the stage. Behind the stage is a backcloth, again providing entry and exit points. This backcloth is one long side of a rectangular room created by hangings, providing the actors with a waiting area for concealed costume change at the back of the stage, and of course, that invisibility to the audience before an entrance. As an addition to the pageant wagon, this resolves issues of entry and exit, and for the waiting space, but would seem really to come into its own as a flexible tool for the travelling troupe. As we are now talking about professional players, there was perhaps more desire to hide some of the secrets of their art, not to mention a place of safety to store props and possessions which presumably had some artistic value to them and maybe represented financial investment too. A further advantage is that an actor could climb a ladder in the back area and appear above the action, as if from a high window, a rooftop or even the heavens. No need for a crane and a harness, just a ladder and a head for heights. Where an indoor space was available, then the same curtain arrangement could be set up to provide the required facilities. The booth stage is a beautifully simple solution to many of the issues that actors must have faced, and probably explains why it survived well into the Elizabethan period. But of course this is not really a new invention. The Romans had used something very similar in the early mobile theatre period, and probably the Etruscans before them too. It can even be seen as having a distant ancestor in the changing hut of the Greek amphitheatre, but let's say that it was an independent reinvention born out of the necessities of the touring theatre. 
The morality play survived and remained popular beyond the medieval period, well into the 16th century in fact. They continued to feature personified virtues, vices and other character traits and followed the character arc that is best described as the temptation, fall and redemption of the protagonist. Their decline was not like the cycle plays so much to do with the religious changes as their message of morality and personal responsibility was not unsuited to the Protestant way of thinking but the advancements in theatre and playwriting that began to look for more complex debates on the nature of man and his role in the universe. The name morality play makes this type of drama sound very serious, and so they were in the main. But it doesn't mean that they didn't have moments of levity and the potential for theatrical excitement. The personification of the vices could be portrayed in a similar way to the devils and demons of the cycle plays, with their vanquishing being met with similar excitement from the audience. With the rise of the professional acting troupe and the continued need for financing by the guilds, these plays needed to be popular to survive. The adage of the commercial theatre was true then as it is now. Bums were needed on seats so that entrance fees would effectively offset some of the costs of productions and provide actors with a living. With theatre starting to appear on occasions not linked to the religious festival, and in different locations beyond the pageant wagon or the out-of-town space, the need for plays to be commercially successful grew, just as the imperative to attend performances in the name of church duty diminished. Next time, it's off to the Castle of Perseverance for some moral instruction and a bit of a fight. There is plenty to discuss over the way this play was presented and what it tells us about the way medieval citizens enjoyed their theatre. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the podcast, please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content for a small monthly fee. Or, best of all, just tell a friend or two about the show. Also, you can join the Facebook group and follow the podcast on Twitter. Any contributions through Patreon or Ko-fi.com go towards offsetting the cost of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. You can also find all the episodes and lots of other associated stuff on the website. That's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com And I'd like to give a shout out to those of you who listen on YouTube, to whom I also owe an apology. I post the episodes there shortly after they hit the podcast feeds, so thanks for listening and subscribing there if that's easiest for you. But I realise that there has been an error on the feed for the last few weeks, so that you've not had the latest episodes on the YouTube channel for a few weeks. I've corrected this now and we're all up to date, but apologies for the delay and I hope that you enjoy catching up. The great thing about podcasting is that everyone is welcome, whatever their choice of listening platform. If you have any suggestions for the website, questions, comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email on thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.